Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 181, The Bloody Flux of 1775. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about an epidemic that hit Boston and much of New England in the late summer of 1775. As the Revolutionary War ramped up and the siege of Boston reached its peak, both armies faced an invisible enemy. The Bloody Flux, which we might know better by the name dysentery, or shigella, was a diarrheal disease that took a terrible toll on the region's children. Today, though, it's barely remembered, as it's overshadowed by a smallpox outbreak of the same year. To tell us about this forgotten disease, I'm going to be joined today by Judy Cataldo. Judy is an independent scholar and a volunteer with several local organizations, including Minuteman National Park since 1974. Judy has either attended or presented at every History Camp Boston but one, and she was scheduled to present this year in March until our current circumstances forced a delay. Judy's also a historical spinner and a reenactor with the Westford Colonial Minutemen, which is only appropriate since this episode will air on Patriot's Day. But before we talk about Boston's experience with the Bloody Flux, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Since this is our Patriot's Day episode, my pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War. It details the cat-and-mouse game that colonial officials and redcoats played against the revolutionary shadow government in Massachusetts over four small brass cannons that had previously belonged to militia units in Boston. It was intelligence indicating that some of these cannons were hidden in Concord that led General Thomas Gage to order his men to march into the countryside, 245 years ago today. Here's how a reviewer for the U.S. Army's Military Review Journal describes the book. Between the fall of 1774 and the spring of 1775, there was an arms race between the patriots of the Massachusetts colony and the British Army. Both sides were pursuing possession of all artillery in the region. Unlike muskets, artillery had no use other than for war. It was a weapon of war, and there was a sensing that war was on the horizon. Author Bell documents that just in September, all publicly owned cannons in Boston and Charlestown had been taken by one side or the other, and in some cases, taken back. Gage was not only attempting to secure material of war, but he was also determined to locate the cannon and discount the embarrassment of losing the cannon in the first place. Through various sources, he believed the cannon to be located in Concord. Bell posits it was on this 17-mile journey to Concord to regain control of the artillery that a skirmish between approximately 250 British soldiers and 70 colonists fueled the start of the American Revolution. The Road to Concord was written by past podcast guest J.L. Bell, who's a local historian and the writer behind Boston1775.net where he writes a fresh story about the revolutionary era in Boston every single day. We'll have a link to purchase his book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming virtual event this week, we have a book talk hosted by the Massachusetts Historical Society. Thomas Whalen is an associate professor of social science at BU. He'll be speaking on Friday, April 24th about his book, Kooks and Degenerates on Ice, Bobby Orr, the Big Bad Bruins, and the Stanley Cup championship that transformed hockey. Here's how the MHS describes it. 
During the 1969-1970 season, the Big Bad Bruins, led by the legendary Bobby Orr, brushed off their perennial losing ways to defeat the St. Louis Blues in the Stanley Cup Finals for their first championship in 29 years. Thomas J. Whalen brings to life all the colorful personalities and iconic players from this Stanley Cup-raising team. Whalen situates this winning season into its historical context as the United States struggled with issues of war, race, politics, and class, making his book a must-read for sports enthusiasts, hockey fans, and those interested in 20th century American history. The talk begins at 2 p.m. If you're interested in joining, you'll need to register through the MHS website to get connection details. And if you're listening to this on Sunday evening when it comes out, I just want to remind you about the virtual event coming up tomorrow from the Lexington Historical Society. Instead of the traditional reenactment of the Battle of Lexington, this year's Patriots Day will be celebrated virtually. The Lexington Historical Society is hosting an online reenactment. They say, Many of us know the story of the Battle of Lexington, that the plucky band of local militia faced off against the mighty British Army on the town common on April 19, 1775. But what actually happened on the battle green that day, and how did we get to that point? Join us for a deeper dive into the story of that day as we show our award-winning short film, First Shot, The Day the Revolution Began. Following this viewing, local reenactors with experience recreating the battle will be available to answer your questions about the history of the battle, the context of the Revolutionary War, and what it's like to step back in time and relive the past. Rounding off the program will be a performance by Diane Therese, founder and leader of the Lexington Historical Society Colonial Singers. For all the details of the Lexington reenactment and the Big Bad Bruins talk, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 181. We'll have the links you need. And before I talk to Judy Cataldo, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who sponsors Hub History on Patreon. We're acutely aware of the fact that, as of this recording, 22 million Americans have lost their jobs since the COVID crisis began. If you're one of them, don't hesitate for a moment to reduce or pause your contributions. We get it. Times are tough all over. If you are still working, please be charitable. Consider donating to a historic site you've enjoyed in the past because they're struggling without visitors. If you're still up for it after that, we appreciate your continued support. If you haven't supported the show in the past and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. We appreciate your support now more than ever. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Judy Cataldo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So you are another one of our, what I'm calling our History Camp refugees. So you are scheduled to talk at History Camp Boston in March on the topic of the bloody flux of 1775. And then, of course, History Camp got postponed at least till July. And I asked you to come on to the podcast to talk about the bloody flux. So can you start us out by just telling us what in modern language we mean by the bloody flux? Um, the bloody flux is very likely Shigella, which is a disease process where people have bloody diarrhea and cramping that is quite severe. And it's most common 
in places where there are large concentrations of people with limited access to hygiene. So resettlement camps, uh, refugee camps, uh, that's where you will see a lot of Shigella even today. People are still dying of this um, in developing countries. So Shigella, I did a recent episode, a fairly recent episode about a cholera epidemic in Boston in 1849. And that is characterized by clear or mucousy diarrhea, not bloody, but it, it is also a specific disease, specific disease process. And then uh, Shigella, it sounds like is a similar diarrheal disease, but characterized by bloody diarrhea. Does it fall into more broadly, when we say dysentery, that's more of a collection of symptoms than a specific disease process, right? Yeah. Dysentery is actually, I have the OED deck definition, Um, a disease characterized by inflammation of the mucous membrane and glands of the large intestine, accompanied by gripping pains, mucus, and bloody evacuations. So it's, yes, and it is also just epidemics that are usually characterized by diarrhea in general. Today, we know that Shigella is a bacterium and it's carried through untreated water, tainted Mm -hmm water. What did people think caused a disease like Shigella, the bloody flux, in the 18th century? In the 18th century, there was what people called uh, the summer complaint. Hmm. And that was various dysenteries. It usually would be um, a small number that would get it. You'll see one or two deaths in a summer of children from (laughs) dysentery. Usually not even dysentery, just something, some kind of um, GI disturbance that got them dehydrated Mm -hmm. and they died. So it was something they just accepted as something that happened in the summer. And they also blamed it on bad air. Um, It was a miasma. Even one of the uh, commanding generals suggested that, oh yeah, we had a lot of illness in camp, but we moved the camp to a different area. And since we've moved here, the air is much better. And the disease is going away. And it's, yes, and of course... We understand that it's not so much that the air got better, but that they weren't in the crowded conditions, and they probably were able to wash. It's interesting that it was considered a summer complaint. I look at a lot of the other epidemic diseases, the 1918 flu, our current, hopefully our current coronavirus is, will turn out to be seasonal to some extent. And a lot of those are seasonal in the fall and winter. I know the 1918 flu was at its deadliest in sort of the October, yes. November time period. Do you have any sense of why dysentery is more deadly in the summer? I think it's because people are together. And in farming communities, your group activities are going to happen more in the good weather. In the spring, you're spending a lot of time planting, caring for animals, getting things up and running on the farm. You know, and the next thing would be haying in June. And then you're just watching things grow and making sure everything continues to grow. 
So there's time to be more together and doing things together, like haying. Um, mm-hmm. Neighbors might come together to hay. The kids are going to play together. And as it gets into fall, you now have all the fall activities that are more centered on the farm of getting the harvest in. And the mothers are going to be very busy because not only is the harvest coming in, which is a lot of work, but that has to be preserved to get you through the winter. So it's very likely that it's more in the summer because that's when people are near each other. So social distancing actually ended up being something that just happened in the 18th century and it ran its course. Also, it was technically an epidemic, which um, again, according to the official um, definitions, is an epidemic is something that is um, short-lived and in a specific area versus the pandemic, which is on multiple continents and areas at the same time. Now, as you say, an epidemic affects a specific area. And I don't think we've even said yet that the 1775 outbreak of Shigella or the bloody flux was really focused on Boston and the surrounding countryside. What was more effective? Was the town of Boston most affected or was it, were the surrounding areas uh, more deeply impacted? Yes and no. In 1775, Jonathan Sewell was stayed in Boston. And so we have a lot of our information about Boston comes from him. And he said, death has so long stalked among us that he is become much less terrible to me than he once was. Funerals are now so frequent that for a month past, you meet many more dead folks as live ones in Boston streets. And we pass them with much less emotion and attention than we used to pass dead sheep and oxen in days of yore when such sights were not, were to be seen in our streets. So Boston was heavily hit. There's some newspaper articles that say something about 3,000 British soldiers. I honestly Mm. don't know if there were that many British soldiers there. That sounds high. (laughs) It, you know, I think it's propaganda. Right, Which, right. Yes, that's important. It's propaganda that says, see, they're all dying. <laughs> right. Um, and that's propaganda on both sides, which the propaganda mm-hmm. on the other side is much like 1918. There's not much in the newspapers because, well, for one thing, the newspapers are kind of exiled and still getting their their circulation back. And secondly, it's not news if you already know about it. Even um, on the newspapers for April 19th regarding the battle, there's the Boston newspapers kind of aren't there because they're in transit. But the New Hampshire newspaper has kind of a minute by minute. They keep updating the story. This just in. Seriously, it says this just in. But one of the Boston newspapers that stayed there, one of the Tory newspapers says, we're not going to bother telling you anything because you already know about it. So the bloody flux was something like that. People already knew about it, and you don't want to put too much in the newspapers because the only thing they put in the newspapers were these advertisements for cures that weren't. So what sort of things would be advertised as cures at that time? Um, The advertisements for cures were for things that were like, you know, try this cure. Um, Dr. Dr. Ogden celebrated anti-dysenteric pills. 
It's not going to tell you what's in them. <laughs> you might figure it out. They're still preparing a pill and taking a pill, which sounds similar, except it wouldn't be pharmaceutical in, right. in, in any way at the time. And another one is saying, you know, a cure is to take um, new churned butter um, without salt and skimming off the curd part uh, when melted in a clear fire, take two t- uh, spoonfuls um, twice a day. It's uh, clarified, clarified butter. butter. Yeah. Amazing. Clarified I didn't know they could butter. cure dysentery. I know. Well, hey, it's perfect. <laughs> sounds good. Um, and the doctors were saying things that weren't much better um, with other cure, other strange cures. But Wesley had his book. It's, it's the same way that we have Doctor Internet. Um, they right. had they had books like Wesley or the Poor Planters Physician um, and different advice books for medicine. And Wesley actually says um, clear broth. And I'm like, yes, actually, yes, that's what you need. He had a pretty good idea of what to do, but that didn't mean that everyone had his book, and some people might have another. And one of the soldiers in at the camp at Cambridge said he wasn't feeling well, so he went to the surgeon to get a purgative. Oh. Yeah, he took a laxative. To help with the diarrhea. And he felt better in a couple of days, which he would have anyway. Right. Uh, because Assuming you survive the dehydration. Yeah. In an adult, you don't dehydrate as quickly. The thing that I never quite completely understood in nursing school or after was fluid and electrolyte balance. But the part I remember is children dehydrate more quickly and so do the elderly. But the average healthy soldier would have been able to shake this off in a couple of days. It's self-limiting. The one thing about Shigella is self-limiting. And after a few days, you start to feel better. As long as you don't become dehydrated and die. If somebody were to get Shigella or a similar diarrheal illness today, would it mostly be managing the symptoms with IV rehydration and things like that? Or would we be able to treat the disease itself today? What they actually suggest is to treat it with over-the-counter remedies first. Like one doctor said to me, Pepto-Bismol and Pedialyte and use that. And then if it persists, only then do they want you to do antibiotics because actually shortly after I did this same presentation at the second history camp, there was an article in the newspaper that they had found a, an antibiotic resistant strain of Shigella. Um, in uh, somewhere around the American Midwest. Well, that's all we need. First, <laughs> we have the <laughs> I know, MRSA and, and now staph-resistant uh, Shigella. Shigella. That's all we need. And I actually, I kind of went, I almost punched the air. Not that I was happy, <laughs> but that... Vindicated. It was, yes. It was like, see, see, over the counter first. The CDC is right. Uh, um, so, yeah. And today with a child, most parents, without being told, are going to give the child Pedialyte. And if it gets that severe, yeah, they're going to be put in the hospital and they're going to be put on IVs and they're going to get rehydrated. And they're probably going to get antibiotics so that we wouldn't lose the number of children we do today. And the children that are lost are those in places where they can't 
get that, where they um, they don't have access to it, um, like, like the refugee camps. Yeah, for us, it probably wouldn't be as bad because mm-hmm. we have good nutrition already. Were children the most affected in 1775? Yes. Yes. For our listeners, can you give us a sense of how widespread mortality was or how, how much additional mortality they were been at this time? There's an uptick and it's in some towns, it was as much as 2% of the population Ooh. that died. In other towns, it's zero. It hits some places harder than others. For instance, um, Dedham had a population of 1750 and it had 42 deaths 29 of those were children. Oh, wow. And then, of course, what I really studied was Westford because I live here. Westford, with a population of 1193, we had 27 deaths. 23 of those were children. One was um, a refugee from Boston. And, of course, how this all started for me is I grew up in Needham. That was where I first saw a gravestone with um, Mm. the mother and six children on it. And I, had, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the American Revolution at that point. I just mm-hmm. looked and saw a long list of names and said, ooh, epidemic. And that was it. That was as far as I knew. I had actually been trying to document the epitaphs in the old part of the cemetery and then found out that I had been beaten to it by a 100 years by a man named Charles Curtis Greenwood, who did it in the 1860s. And he had put a note on that grave to describe it. And it's actually, it's from the Reverend Samuel West. The information from him is what is how I found out about this. And he said, the dysentery soon prevailed in the American army and extended itself more or less through the country. Although it prevailed most in the towns near camp, my parish partook largely of the calamity. We buried about 50 persons in the course of the season. Some families were dreadfully bereaved. One in particular, a Mr. Joseph Daniels, buried an amiable wife and six very promising children in about six weeks. We often buried three or four in a day. My time was wholly devoted into visiting the sick attendance on the dying and the dead. Now, when I looked at Needham Vital Records, uh, with a population of 912, uh, 24 died, 11 child deaths. So, 24 is a little off of burying 50 or 60 people. On an anecdotal front, listeners to the show will not be surprised to hear me reference the Adams family, and their papers are wonderfully searchable. Abigail writes about just being surrounded by death in Braintree. And John's brother, Abigail's mother, and I think aunt died. A family servant died. Abigail said she went to four funerals in a day. They lost, I think, five friends in six weeks. And she said it was just the, the mortality was so great that they had trouble getting somebody to help them care for the sick. That to me is that's the most important part of what she's saying is that she couldn't even find someone to help her take care of her own children. Mm-hmm. That they were sick enough that it required her to be there as and caring for them. And she needed help. She couldn't do it alone. 
that tells you a lot about this illness. It's interesting, given how how many households experienced so much illness and death very close to them, either in the household or certainly would have known somebody who was sick or had passed away during this few-month period. It's interesting that we don't remember dysentery or the bloody flux in 1775. What all the books talk about is smallpox, smallpox. during the siege of Boston. And you have notes from George Washington concerned about this refugees being sent out of, of this town of Boston with smallpox. You have arguments for and against inoculation among the Continental Army and among the British soldiers. And everybody's chattering throughout all the historic records about smallpox. Why do you think that overshadows dysentery or the, the bloody flux to such a, a great degree? It's reportable. Mm-hmm. And so in Boston, in the 18th century, it's a reportable disease. Paul Revere, you know, had to quarantine his whole family and put the flag on his house because there was smallpox. Even though dysentery deaths outnumber smallpox deaths throughout history, Mm -hmm. it's the thing we don't talk about. The thing we don't talk about is the sad stuff, children dying. And it's hard to deny having had smallpox because it's scarring and it's very visible. And I guess Shigella or a, a diarrheal disease, if you survive, there's no really. And, no and it was, it was, I, the other thing is, is like I say, it was the summer complaint. It was so common that people just didn't give it a, a lot of thought. In between two smallpox epidemics, there was the bloody flux. And it's not all one smallpox epidemic. It's this. And we know it is because we have people telling us it was the bloody flux and um, that people were dying and lots of people were dying. Um, you know, my, my favorite diarist is a woman from Sudbury. And she says, you know, oh, the terrible judgments we have in the land besides the war. We have the bloody flux and a great many people die with it. She's saying the words. We know it was the bloody flux, but it it sometimes gets smallpox gets the credit. I wonder also if, to some degree, it's because smallpox, you know, it's this sort of ancient human nightmare, and it's it's known around the world. And the bloody flux, or the 1775 bloody flux, is a fairly local epidemic. And who wants to talk about dysentery? <laughs> well, apparently, I do. I asked you to be here today. <laughs> Uh, how, do you have a sense of how widespread the epidemic was in 1775? I know it was in the town of Boston and the surrounding towns. It might have been carried further by people who were coming into the continental camps to visit their friends and relatives than going home. Was it all across New England or was it really it's, tighter it's, into this it's area? New England in that it gets into southern New Hampshire. Um, there's uh, one of the cures that um, – was in the newspapers was actually from a New York newspaper. So whether it was just their annual outbreak or whether indeed someone had carried it to New York. Um, so I have found um, a few deaths out as far as Deerfield. So if I went to Hadley, would I find them? Possibly. Um, I just haven't found their cemetery yet. 
I found myself doing something very similar to that this during this time of social distancing. One of the ways I can get out of these four walls and not lose my mind is to go for a walk in my neighborhood cemetery. And I've just the past week or so really noticed in one section how many a cluster of 1918 headstones, including one, a family, a Polish American family. There was four 1918 deaths and a 1919 all on the same stone. So I'm sort of doing the same thing where I'm noticing these clusters of 1918 deaths and saying, Oh, that, that must be the flu. Pretty likely um, because we lost more people to the influenza than certainly we did to the actual war since we were only there for really only at the front lines for a few months. The one thing about this particular epidemic of in 1775 is, again, it's mostly children. And um, the great, we don't talk about this. Even though we can't see what these parents thought about the child that they lost, and there's no way to really tell, nobody wrote anything down, um, people didn't feel that they could speak about it. They needed to get on with life. But I always wonder, as I stand at a grave, how often did your mom come here? <laughs> how often did dad stop by on a way, on his way by? Um, one of the things for Westford that's, I, as far as I know, this is pretty unique, is that all but one of the people who I can document died during that dysentery period um, have a gravestone. Whereas, um, so Lexington had 17 deaths, and they've got possibly one gravestone. Um, and that's if you count the modern one for Captain Parker, because he happened oh. to die within that time. Um, right. And that's it. Um, I think, or they have, yeah, that's it. Out of um, 11 children who died, they have one gravestone versus Westford which is out of 27 who died, 23 children, we have mm -hmm. 23 gravestones. They're all the same stone cutter. Um, Parks family of Groton. Um, it's oh, not package deal, common. I guess. It's just not common to have that right. many gravestones for children that you can document, you know, you can document when they died and they've all got gravestones. But again, that tells you something that Parents were willing to spend the money. It was not inexpensive. Um, they're they're smaller stones. They're not they're not the big grand stones that the parks did. Uh, they're very simple designs, but they paid the money to put a gravestone in. And this is during wartime when the economy is just about. So they would not have been able to likely buy the gravestone and put it in because the ground would have started freezing um, shortly after that time, and it takes a while to get a gravestone. So they may not have gotten the gravestone until the spring. Um, and that's right around the time that um, there's a lot of war profiteering going on. They were. They were, there, were uh, there were editorials in the newspaper complaining about war profiteering. So it's, it's more interesting when you think of it that way. You know, how many times did parents come here? What were they thinking? Did they come on their birthday? Uh, did they leave flowers on their anniversary? Mm -hmm. um, like I see so many parents doing today. Well, you just mentioned 
the fact that this, the war profiteering was ha- happening as the parents were trying to put up these gravestones. And that, that reminds me that we've barely acknowledged that this terrible disease was hitting Boston during wartime, yeah. during the peak of the siege of Boston. Are you comfortable talking about how Shigella dysentery, the bloody flux, would have affected the two armies and whether it affected readiness at all? It's unclear. Um, there's a lot of men. I think the, the other part about that time in the war is that, and all the people from Siege of Boston will get mad at me, but it's, <laughs> it's, there's not a lot that happens. Um, you know, we get Bunker Hill and we get the evacuation of Boston in March, and there's all these little tiny skirmishes in between then that make less waves in the history books than the bloody flux. Uh, someone might occasionally mention the bloody flux um, or or disease in the camp. They'll always talk about the disease in the camp, um, mm-hmm. but not acknowledge what that disease was. But you don't hear about them like trying to get the sheep or whatever off of Sheep <laughs> Island. It's you don't hear about those things. You don't hear about. Um, we really just don't think much about what was going on in the siege specifically, but it was certainly on the minds of people. Uh, another one of the diaries that's from Situate, and he keeps mentioning this person died, and this person died, and this person died, and then he. Um, goes on to um, mention that, um, you know, what the Sunday sermon was. And, you know, this was the, um, you know, this, you know, the, the reverend preached on this, on this scripture. And I looked them up. And as I looked them up, I'm like, well, are they talking about the dysentery, you know, and people dying from that? Or are they talking about the war? Um, because both are the same. I mean, even that, that quote from, um, experienced White Richardson where she says, um, you know, if it's not bad enough, we've got the war. Now we've got the bloody flux. These are two things. Both of them seem to be of equal concern. Um, Dedham had a day of fasting and prayer because they had lost so many to the bloody flux. But that's the only one I've, I've noted so far. Not that it might not be in someone else's diary. So the war seems to be the bigger thing on their mind, even though they're going through this. So the, there, like I said, there's that newspaper that says there were all these cases of, of British soldiers who died. And there are indeed soldiers who died at the camp in Cambridge. Actually, a couple of them are right next door in Chelmsford. Um, as I was looking at their war memorial and I read their names and I kind of, yes, I like, oh, you're, yeah, I know what you died of because I know when you died. Um, and it's so, yes, there were some and there was certainly a lot of sickness because they note that. And like they said, they noted that when they moved the camp and said, oh, the air is better. Everyone feels better now. They, it affected both camps. What we don't know is, because again, nobody's writing about it. What was it like when those soldiers came home and had lost family members? So in Westford, we have um, uh, Colonel John Robinson, who was the highest ranking officer at the North Bridge on April 19, 1775. And he lost uh, three daughters. 
did that happen because he came back home on furlough? Did it happen because it was just in the area? And then he comes home to three dead little girls. Um, how did that affect him? So remind me, I know you said this when we started our conversation, but the this epidemic breaks out first in, is it June of 75? Um, it likely started in Boston with the troops. Mm-hmm. It seems to start, again, seems because other deaths were happening because of Bunker Hill. Um, so it seems to happen sometime late June into July in Boston. There also seemed to be the occasional death in a town in July, which could have been just normal or could have been that first case that someone died, mm-hmm. which is why when I, when I compiled my numbers, how I did it was to, um, I realized that the epidemic really goes from July, starts sometime in July, and can also, um, and there's also people that likely died from it in November. But there's also people in an epidemic who just happen to be, die. There's still accidents, there's still natural causes, and, and we're seeing that in the news today. So I looked at it, so when I looked at it, um, I only looked at deaths for August, September, October. So that way, I was better able to get an idea for, by eliminating two months, I likely eliminated some of those natural causes. And so from that range of August, September, October, what did you come up with for mortality numbers? I did it by town. So it's, it's, it's very different depending on where you are. Um, mm-hmm. In towns that were hit hard, it's 2%. That's not 2% of cases, which is what people talk about right. with the influenza epidemic and maybe with our current. Yeah. Right. That's 2% of the total, total population. Total population. Which is enormous. Um, and, um, but then you have others where it's, well, Needham actually, as far as we know from recorded in vital records, it works out to 1.5%. So you, you focused on the deaths between August and November. And then I think the, the death rate drops off pretty quickly. Pretty quickly in October. Into- it drops, it starts dropping off in October. It's actually the, the height of the epidemic is the last two weeks in August, the first two weeks in September. And that's where towns are recording three and four deaths at a time, except in towns where it may be hit a little bit later. And so they have a kind of a different two weeks, which I think is, um, it's a little bit later for, I think, Weymouth. Yeah. Braintree and Weymouth. Cause I know Ab- Abigail Adams was, was writing in October about not being able to keep up with the funerals. Yeah. Her mother, um, yeah. Died oh, in oh, my bursting heart, my mother. Yeah. For a lot of the other epidemics I've, I've looked at for, um, the 1849 cholera epidemic, there was a really strong public health reaction that was credited with bringing the ep- epidemic under control. And same thing with the flu in yes. 1918, and there, we're all social distancing right now. Mm-hmm. Was there some widespread effort to fight dysentery, the, the bloody flux, and that's what helped bring it to an end? Or was it just its natural, the course of the disease and the, the course of the season? The course of the disease and the course of the season. They didn't know how it caused it. The main prevention for Shigella is to wash your hands and Mm -hmm. to wash any raw fruit. That's what we know today, but they didn't understand that. 
they you if you had told them that they're carrying uh, the disease on their hands, it wouldn't have made a lick of sense. They would have it, laughed at us. What do you mean? <laughs> it's in the air. It's a miasma. It's it's right. the weather. Um, it would never have occurred to them. And of course, children are the are the the biggest culprits for putting their hands in their mouths. Um, mm-hmm. And touch, and it's mostly hands in their mouths because this is one that's ingested, um, versus inhaled. Um, you have to ingest the bacteria to catch it. So, I mean, it's just it's it's just made for little kids. Before we start to wrap up, what should our listeners take away from this story about the epidemic of the bloody flux, or what what what's the the lesson to be learned? One of the lessons is. In history, we look at battles, we look at names and dates, and the big picture of history. And this makes us look at the little picture, the one that didn't change the outcome of history. It didn't change the war. It changed the people. Yes, sure, we don't know exactly, we don't have anything written to what they're saying, but we know how parents feel when they lose a child. I think that sometimes as historians, we lose track of the people for the events. And the other takeaway from this is using vital records to learn about your town, Um, that you can look at the patterns for what years things happened in, when are there more births or when are there more deaths, Um, and there's a lot to be learned, and then you can go and look for the next thing. If it weren't for seeing that one gravestone, I never would have known that there was a bloody flux epidemic. I wouldn't have had a name for it. Look to your vital records, um, because the things that didn't make it into your town history are in there. I appreciate your joining us today to talk about the bloody flux in all its gruesome detail. If people want to learn more about the Bloody Flux or hear more from you, uh, what should they do? Um, to learn more about the Bloody Flux, there's not a lot out there. I will be putting together probably some um, some links on um, my uh, much-neglected blog, um, which is Colonial Spinning Bee, to point people to where they can look for vital records. Um, so keep looking for the little pictures is the best advice. All right. Well, I will link to... Uh, your blog in this week's show notes so folks can have some of those threads to pull on themselves. Okay, that's great. And thanks again. Thanks for having me. To learn more about the 1775 Bloody Flux, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 181. We'll have a link to Judy Cataldo's blog, her reenacting group, and an article she guest authored for J.L. Bell's Boston 1775 blog. I'll also throw in links to letters written by Abigail Adams at the height of the epidemic, describing the atmosphere of sickness and sadness that surrounded her family in the summer of 1775. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming events and J.L. Bell's Road to Concord, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, 
Drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Thank you.